welcome here. If you are a guest, my name is David. I'm an intern here at uh, Tri-City. It's my joy to open God's Word with you uh, this morning. Uh, one of the questions that I often get uh, asked, or one of the comments, I guess, uh, that people often say when I first meet them is they will look at me and they'll say, David, you are really tall. <laughs> and usually I don't know how to respond, so I just say, yes, I am. And, uh, and then the next question that always comes after that is, did you ever play basketball? And the answer to that is also yes. So now no one needs to ask. It's great. Um, but when I would play basketball, I was a very vocal player on the court. You know, I was always shouting things from the bench or the court or anything like that. And um, the, the, the thing I would get really vocal about is, is the refing. When the refs would make a bad call, especially against me, it was like a foul that was like a total bogus call. And I would just go up to the ref and be like, hey, what do you think you're doing? You think you can just make a call like that? Are you blind here? Take my glasses. Maybe it'll help you next time. And I, I, I've been sanctified slightly more since that time. But uh, have, you, have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? Right? Have, you, have, you got, have you ever been penalized for something you know you were like completely innocent of? Uh, it could have been uh, your sibling who tattled on you for something they did, right? You know, it could be something at work where maybe you actually got blamed for, for, for something that wasn't your, your fault. It was maybe a, a family member that might have accused you of something. We all have uh, situations like that where there's some kind of uh, injustice that's brought against us and it, and it wasn't our fault. And so how do we react usually in those kind of situations? Uh, do we kind of, uh, like me, you get angry, you get upset, you try and prove your innocence? Uh, how, how do we respond? And today in our text, we're going to see how Jesus reacts when this happens to him. Uh, we've been in the book of, of Matthew. As we lead up to Easter, we're, we're looking at Jesus' uh, life and ministry as he heads towards the cross. And we've seen that Jesus was arrested, and today he's going to be put on trial. He's going to be unjustly condemned, and then he's going to be uh, eventually physically abused. And the question we're going to ask is, how is Jesus, the man who claimed to be God, going to respond to this? There is a, a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards uh, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, but today our question is, uh, what does it look like when God is in the hands of angry sinners? How does God respond? And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, we're going to be in verses 57 uh, to 68 today. And if you don't have a Bible, that's all right. There are some uh, out in the tables in the lobby. You can go and grab one of those. Uh, you can take that home. It's our gift uh, to you. And we're going to look at the three responses of Jesus to his unjust condemnation. Uh, we're going to look at Jesus' silence, uh, his declaration, and then lastly, his endurance. Uh, so let's read this together. Just uh, for context, it is now the middle of the night. Uh, Jesus has been arrested uh, and all his disciples have fled him. Verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, 
You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Uh, Father, as we open uh, your word uh, this morning, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly. Uh, that we, we would see uh, how you humbled yourself and you endured this injustice uh, for our sake. So please help us see you more clearly. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, so Jesus' first response is that of silence. And we're going to see as we look at this, that Jesus' silence shows his submission uh, to the Father's will. Jesus is brought before this council called the, the Sanhedrin. This was the uh, highest legislative body in Jewish Palestine at the time. This is the Supreme Court of their time, uh, made up of about 71 uh, influential leaders, uh, the high priests, the scribes, uh, people like that. And they were the political link with the Roman governor. These guys did not like Jesus. They were very angered by his teaching. And so when they brought Jesus uh, to trial, uh, they weren't really interested in the facts. They were interested in a quick conviction. Uh, the Sanhedrin had a whole bunch of, of rules and regulations that governed how trials were to take place. And, and they broke a lot of those. Uh, for instance, uh, trials could not take place during the Passover season, which it was. Uh, trials had to be held during the day. It's a night. Uh, and if it was a case in, where somebody was to be charged of something where they would uh, be executed... That, that verdict had to be given the following day. It couldn't be given even on that same day, but we see how they, they, they speed the trial through. We even see that they bring in false witnesses, people just uh, left, right, and center that can try and testify uh, something against Jesus, but they can't find two people whose stories actually align until they do find these two guys. These two guys say, yeah, we, we, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy the temple and in three days rebuild it, which is great for the Sanhedrin. They're like, we got him. Except that's not actually what Jesus said. We have recorded for us in, in the book of John what Jesus' actual words were. Uh, they remember Jesus saying, I will destroy the temple. Uh, but what Jesus actually said is, to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. He, he's not saying, I'm going to destroy the temple, but actually that they were. And John, in this context, is, is, tells us even that Jesus is not speaking of the physical temple, but he's actually speaking about his body. This is them misquoting Jesus, uh, but they don't really care. They feel like they have something against Jesus, so the high priest presses Jesus further. He says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And this is, this is pretty stunning when you think about it. Jesus was silent. Uh, he knew what was going on, the illegality of the trial, but he didn't say anything. And this is totally different than how he would respond. Right? If somebody's accused us of something we didn't do, they're misquoting us, we're going to tell them. We're going to be like, that's not what I said. Look, I'm innocent. We see this with, with criminals and prisoners all the time. Whenever something happens, they're accused and they say, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And most of the time, that, that's not always true. But there are particular prisoners who are very insistent about their innocence. There are people who will go to death row and with their dying breath still proclaim that they, they didn't do the crime. Take Colin Ross, for example. 
Uh, Colin Ross was uh, executed in uh, 1922 in Australia. Uh, he was accused of murdering a 12-year-old girl. And throughout his whole trial, he maintained his innocence. He said, I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Uh, but they had found uh, a hair in, in his home, a hair that they thought matched that of the little girl. And this was the first trial in Australia that they used forensic evidence to prove a case. And this was the key piece of evidence. Uh, they took them, they did some chemical testing and decided uh, that these two hairs were the same. Uh, therefore, he was probably guilty. He probably had taken her to her house and then killed her. But with his dying, his dying words were this. Colin Ross said, I swear by Almighty God that I am an innocent man. I never saw the child. I never committed the crime. And I don't know who did. Uh, he even wrote a farewell letter to his family that said, The day is coming when my innocence will be proved. 76 years later, in 1998, a reporter uh, found this story. And he, and he was fascinated by his declaration of innocence, even to his death. So he investigated the story more. He went to the archives and he found the original hair samples that were used in the case. He went and had them DNA tested. And it turned out that the two samples were not the same. That the, the, the murdered girl's hair and the hair found in his house were not the same hair. He was innocent. And so they took this to the Supreme Court of Australia and they actually, for the first time, gave a post-death pardon to Colin Ross. Colin wanted the whole world to know he was innocent. You know, I wanted the ref to know it wasn't a foul. But Jesus doesn't say anything here. He, he doesn't defend himself. He could have refuted them. He could have spoken up, but he didn't say anything. Why not, Jesus? Why not defend yourself? Well, well that wasn't his goal. His goal was submitting himself to the Father's will. Uh, hours before this, in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he had prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. And, and now we see him living that out. And in doing that, he's actually fulfilling a prophecy made 750 years later by the prophet, or earlier by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah uh, prophesied about the Messiah that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus' silence shows us his willingness to submit to the Father's will. He knows he's being misquoted. He knows it's an illegal trial. He knows he's completely innocent, yet he says nothing. He's willing to, to, to look a fool, to get things that he does not deserve, to be, to be thought a criminal so that God's purposes might be accomplished. And before we move on, I think it, it's worth asking ourselves, could we say the same is true of us? Would we be willing to, to be thought bad of so that God's purposes might be accomplished? Would we be willing to have our, our reputations tarnished if it meant God might be glorified? You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't always mean that submission to the Father's will is silence, although it may be. But it means that, that we put God's will and his desires and his purposes above our own. So, so can I ask you, is there somewhere in your life where you're being called right now uh, to submit to God's will, though it may mean injustice for you? It may mean that your reputation is tarnished, but that God is going to be glorified. Jesus was willing to submit to his Father's will. 
but he doesn't just say silent. Uh, His next response is that of a declaration, a declaration that shows his power and authority. At this point, the Sanhedrin are are frustrated with Jesus. You know, as as much as him saying, I I will destroy the temple is offensive, it's not really something they can bring as a charge to the Romans to say uh, he's deserving of death. So the high priest uh, charges Jesus under an oath to answer this, this question. He says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's saying, are you the Messiah? Are are you claiming to be the Christ? And Jesus answers him. Jesus says, you have said so. Jesus is saying, your word's not mine. Right? Because because Jesus knows that, that the high priest's understanding of the Messiah was very different than what Jesus knew the Messiah was. Uh, the, the, the Jews at that time thought the Messiah was, was a man, a man who would free them from the oppression of the Romans. But Jesus is saying, I have a fundamentally different understanding of what the Messiah is. And so he uses the word but. He's not just adding on to what Caiaphas understands. He's contrasting and saying, there is a different understanding of the Messiah that you need. And he says, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And there, there's two texts from the Jewish scripture that Jesus is alluding to in this statement. Uh, Psalm 110, which speaks uh, of Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father with all the power and authority that comes with it. And Daniel chapter 7, which talks about this, this never-ending, all-encompassing glory and dominion that belongs to his Son of Man. And he, he's trying to show them that, that the true Christ has the power and authority of God himself. So let's look at at the Daniel passage uh, together. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the ancients of days, that's that's the Lord, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And it's worth us taking time to reflect on this because the Sanhedrin thought Jesus was just a man. But Jesus is trying to say, I'm much more than that. He's actually declaring himself to be the king of kings, the one who has all authority and power. Every king, uh, their influence, their authority is limited in some way. Uh, They might have authority over a specific geographical region. Uh, They might have authority over a specific people group. But Jesus is saying, uh, all people, all nations, all languages are under my authority. He's saying, all things belong to me and are under my authority. As As Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And, and Jesus is sovereign over all because he is the creator over all. As Paul says in Colossians, uh, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So all things are created by Jesus, 
But Paul is saying also all things are created for Jesus, that the purpose of anything in the universe is to glorify Jesus, that that's its ultimate ends. He's saying when we look around and we see the plants and we see the beauty and we say, why are they here? We say they're there to point to Jesus. When we we look at any atom or molecule, any galaxy or star, they exist for the praise of his glory. That the mighty waves and the the thunder, they, they exist to glorify Jesus. And there is going to come a day when he does come on the clouds again. And and all of heaven with with overwhelming chorus will sing, Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And the Sanhedrin think he's a man. And Jesus is saying, I am much more than a man. My power is inexhaustible. My dominion is, is, is unending. And Jesus knew that this would provoke them. He knew this would provoke the council, uh, but not just them. Anyone, anywhere in the world now who hears the name of Jesus are, are forced to wrestle with the question, who is Jesus? Is Jesus really who he claimed to be? And you might be sitting here and, and saying, David, I don't know. This sounds a bit uh, far-fetched, honestly. Like I get Jesus uh, as, a, as a good teacher. I like some of the stuff he says. He seems like a good guy. Uh, but you're saying he, he's claiming to be the supreme being of the universe. He's claiming to be God, essentially. I'm, I'm happy with him as a prophet. I'm happy with him as a spiritual leader. But I think you might be taking it a bit too far. And, and I can understand why you would say that. It's a big claim for someone to make. But that's why Jesus makes it. He makes it because he's forcing you to wrestle with, who am I? Am I really who I claim to be? Or am I just crazy for thinking these things? He doesn't leave room for us to think of him just as a good teacher. He's either God or a lunatic. And so my encouragement, if that's you today, is to approach Jesus different than the Sanhedrin did. Uh, Because the Sanhedrin, uh, they already had made up their minds when Jesus came in for the trial. They knew what they thought thought of him, and they were just trying to use the evidence uh, to fit what their preconceived notion of Jesus already was. Uh, And we we can do the same to some extent. Uh, We may have uh, read some books, we may have heard some things about Jesus, but we may not have actually taken the time uh, to hear what Jesus actually said about himself. And so my encouragement is, is, is don't, don't pass judgment on Jesus because of who you think he is. Ask Jesus who he is and then simply take the time to listen. But if all this is true, Jesus, if you, if you are really a king, if you do have all authority, uh, why are you still in handcuffs? Uh, why are you on trial for something you did not do? And we'll see the answer to that as we look at Jesus' third response. And that is Jesus' endurance. And that endurance is going to show us his love. Look with me at verse 65. In response to Jesus' declaration, it says this, Then the high priest tore his robes, and he said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. 
At last, the Sanhedrin have what they're looking for. This is blasphemy, a claim to be a king. This is the charge they bring against Jesus to the Romans. They say he claimed to be king of the Jews. And so Caiaphas, although he tears his robe in grief, he could not be more happy. Finally, they have Jesus where they want him. And when Caiaphas asked for the judgment of the council, they respond with probably one of the most unintentionally ironic phrases in the whole Bible. He deserves death. Jesus. Jesus deserves death. What did Jesus ever do to deserve death? Was it all the sick people that he healed? Was it all the hungry that he fed? All the tenderness he showed towards his enemies? If, If there's anyone who's not deserving of death, it is Jesus of Nazareth. He lived a life completely innocent. The real irony is that those who would now condemn Jesus are the ones who who should stand condemned. They're judging the true judge. They're exerting authority over the one who has all authority. But despite that, look how they treat him. Verse 67. (laughs) Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is a crazy situation in, in any court. A, a judge that would come off their bench and start slapping and spitting the accused. And, and how much more when Jesus knew he was innocent. How deep each blow would have, would have felt. The, the cutting pain of each word, knowing Jesus was innocent. And, and this is not just anyone. This is, this is the creator overall to whom all glory, power, and dominion belong. This is the one who the very water molecules of their spit are being held together by his command. And he endures. I don't know if you've ever had someone uh, spit at you. If you've ever had that experience, it's not fun. I had it recently in my family. It wasn't my wife, don't worry. (laughs) It was my three-year-old son. Uh, uh, He had done something wrong and I had asked him to apologize. So I got down and said, James, will you apologize? And he decided it was a good idea to spit in my face. And uh, so I'll tell you what I didn't do. I didn't just say nothing, right? (laughs) I didn't turn the other cheek. I made sure he knew that was wrong, James. But a spit in the face prompts a reaction. But Jesus doesn't seem to have any reaction here, right? He, He just takes all this pain and suffering that's being thrown at him. And this to me is remarkable because when we endure, endure injustice, when there's, when there's, things that we're accused of that we didn't do when it's causing pain and suffering in our life, we do everything we can to get out of it. We, we will make sure we are, we are innocent. We will, everybody knows that it wasn't us. We'll do everything in our power, but not Jesus. You know, if there is a cure for your medical disease, usually you will take the cure. You know, if, if there's, you're not going to endure the, the symptoms and the pain and the suffering of your disease if there's a cure available. It's only when there's no cure That's when you have to to suffer and endure. But Jesus claims he has power to change the situation. So the question is, why doesn't he? Because this is what we see people with power do. Think of King David. Uh, King David slept with another man's wife, and then he used his authority as king to have that man killed. Right? Cover up the situation. And we we see people uh, today do that. Politicians or companies who have power, money, influence, they use that so that if they're in trouble with the law, they can try and get themselves out of it. 
Right? But, but Jesus restrains himself and, and everything that he commands. Because if, if you spit in the Queen of England's face, what happens? The bodyguards come and smack you to the ground, right? There's going to be people on you right away. But Jesus says he has 12 legions of angels awaiting his call. But he doesn't say the word. He continues to endure. And so, Jesus, why? If you're truly God and you're being abused unjustly by a bunch of angry sinners, why don't you make things right? Why don't you just get yourself uh, out of it? Because of his love. Look at verse 65. The high priest asked the Sanhedrin, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. See, Jesus accepted the sentence of death. He he didn't deserve it, but he accepted the sentence because he knew where it would lead. It would lead to the cross. And it was at the cross that he would actually take the sentence of death that you and I deserve. You see, Jesus allowed himself to be declared guilty here so that on the cross we might be declared innocent. He took the condemnation and the punishment that we deserve on ourselves so that it might be said of us that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He took all of that so that we might be free. We might be innocent in the eyes of the Father. When he looks at us, we're accepted by him, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done for us. And so if you're here today and you're feeling the weight of your your sin, that's okay. Because you are accepted by God, not because of your life, but because of his. Uh, His perfect obedience is imputed to us. It's given over to us. That's what it means to be justified, to be declared innocent in the eyes of God. And that happens because Jesus was condemned in our place. He could have gotten out of it at any moment, but he endured because he loved us. And so our question is, as we look at these responses of of Jesus, as we see his love and his tenderness towards us, what should our response to him be? Does this passage have any encouragement for us when we are going through similar things? Uh, Maybe when we are enduring some kind of injustice, uh, we're penalized for something we're innocent of. Because in those times, we can often say, God, why is this happening? Does anyone understand? And the encouragement of our passage today is that Jesus does understand. Jesus does understand because he's been there before. Jesus has endured the shame and the humiliation. He's been mocked and beaten and scorned. And he did it so that you would know that there is one who can sympathize with you. There is one who understands what you're going through. He knows it because he's been there before. Jesus is not just a doctor who knows about cancer. Jesus is a doctor who's been through cancer himself. He knows the experience and he understands. So when you call on him, know that he does hear you and he does understand. And our text also leads us to respond simply in worship. When we see who who Jesus is, when we see the depths of his love, that that he humbled himself to the point of obedience, even even death on a cross, we say, Jesus, you are worthy of all worship. You are worthy of all praise, all honor, glory. Let Let me give my life to you. You have done so much for me. Whatever you ask of me, Lord, I will do. 
Worship is, is, is a whole life thing where we live our lives in honor to God because of what he has done for us. And we've been free. There is now no condemnation for us. So we, we know we are innocent. We know we are accepted. So we say, God, I'm going to live my life for you. And in a moment, we're going we're gonna to end our time and, and the band's going to come up and we're going to sing uh, some more songs. But before we, we do that, I want to take a moment and lead us uh, into that time uh, together. And the way I want to do that is just by leaving us with an image of who Jesus is. And so I want to read a passage uh, to you uh, from a well-known book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a bit of a lengthier uh, passage. Uh, but, but in this passage, we, we've seen up to this point, there's a young boy named Edmund. Uh, he's been uh, convicted and he's going to be uh, killed by a witch, a, a wicked witch. And there, there's a, a lion, a fierce, mighty lion. His name is Aslan. He's the king over all of Narnia. He has authority over all of that realm. And he's decided to die in Edmund's place. And so I hope as we read this, we'll start to see, get a glimpse of who Jesus is through the character of Aslan. We pick it up as Aslan is, is walking towards the great stone table, the place of his execution. And Edmund's two younger sisters, or older and younger, uh, watch. A howl and a glibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch herself seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried, the fool has come. Bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting. Waiting for Aslan's roar and the spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarfs and apes, rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge lion over on his back and tied all four paws together, shouting and cheering as if they had done something brave. Though, had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when his enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cord so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him to the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, snip went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. Then the ogre stood back and the children watching from their hiding place could see the face of Aslan, looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is that what we were afraid of, said another. And they surged round Aslan, jeering at him, saying things like, Puss, puss, poor pussy. How many mice have you caught today, cat? Would you like a saucer of milk, pussums? Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws could have cost two or three of them their hand. But he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all the rabble. Everyone was at him now. Those who had been afraid to come near him, even after he was bound, began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures, kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, and jeering at him. Oh, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes the brutes. For now that the shock was over, 
the shorn face of Aslan looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. Our king is a lion, a mighty, fierce lion. But he became a lamb. A lamb led to the slaughter for us so that you and I could be saved. He took our guilt for his innocence. He took shame so that we might have joy. He took death that we may have life. And he is worthy of our worship. Let's worship him together. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of all worship. All praise goes to you. And I pray now, as we respond in worship, would you, would you fill our hearts with joy at knowing the great peace that you have bought us by your blood. I pray we know that you are one who sympathizes with us, who knows and understands our situations. And we see your glory more clearly every day. In your name, amen.